0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter 9 today, so if you have your Bibles or maybe the outline, you can open them up. If you have uh, the Bible app, you can actually go to the events portion click on our church. Uh, It should populate right there, or you can search for First Christian Church Roseburg, and you'll have the notes for today's message. We're actually concluding a series uh, that we started a few months ago on Second Nature, and what we have been doing is we have been looking at what are the habits that we could have that would change our character So as Christians, we believe certain things. We believe uh, there's a certain way to act. There's a certain way to live. We believe these certain things about who God the Father is and who Jesus is and what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And here's the thing. What's crazy is we might believe these things, but in our regular everyday life, we're just as screwed up as everyone else. Right? Can I get an amen? From an honest congregation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We believe God is the Father. We believe Jesus Christ died for our sins. We believe that the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we will get upset in traffic just like anyone else, right? We will still have moments in our life that if we're just being honest, we're just as screwed up as everyone else. So how how do we take our beliefs, what we believe about ourselves and about God, Oh, I thought that was my phone. Um, That would have been really embarrassing uh, for me. Um, How do we take these beliefs and actually allow them to impact our character, right? You ever see or know of someone in your life and they're the rare person that they actually live out their faith? What they believe has actually impacted their character. What they believe about Bible and uh, God and Scripture and Jesus and the Holy Spirit has actually impacted your behavior. I'm here to tell you that does not happen by accident. It just doesn't. So one of the ways, it's not the only way, but a good indicator on how you can get your beliefs, transform your character is by implementing strong spiritual habits. So these habits help us develop character. Now, the problem with habits is you have to do them more than once to develop character. Am I right? Right? We can point to other areas in our life and identify the one time we had a salad and it did not work. Right? So the key with developing strong spiritual habits is there's a rhythm to it, there's a cadence, there's a faithfulness, there's a longevity. But over time, what we see is the the accumulation of these habits actually start to impact us in real and significant ways. So that's what we've been talking about, um, that habits are the way that our character changes over a period of time of time so today to kind of wrap up this series because the next couple weeks we were going to take a departure from uh, this series next week Dr. Agam is preaching for us from Bushnell University you might have remembered him from last year he did a great job so we're having him back again Um, and he's preaching for our gratitude Sunday and then in two weeks we we uh, we start our Christmas series because we're there already it's Christmas season uh, so we're going to start our Christmas series in two weeks. So this is kind of a wrap-up uh, kind of message for this series. And so instead of spending time on a specific practice, we're going to identify a specific quality, and the quality is this, self-control, self-control. So self-control problems are everywhere and really can manifest themselves in a variety of ways, Right? Uh, self-control problem is when you're doing something, you desperately want to stop, but you can't. So there are addictions like drinking and drugs and overspending and gab- gambling and overeating. There's sexual addictions. They're all addictions. There's all kinds of addictions. And what I want to say to those of you who might be struggling through an addiction Right. If I just listed one of the addictions you might be struggling with, or maybe there's another one on the list, Um, what I want to be careful to say is today is for you, but I do also hope that you also would take advantage of other resources that are there to help you. Um, I, I pray that you have been able to do that already, but if you need help, in identifying some other resources that would help you with alcohol addiction, uh, with drug addiction, with any of the other kinds of addictions we've talked about, feel free to call me. Feel free to call the church, to text myself. We would love to put other resources in your path that would also help you, but it's a misnomer for us to simply think of self-control only manifesting itself in one of these addictions we've talked about. In fact, we have a lot of areas that we probably should exercise self-control. Let me give you an example to see if these are just for me or if they're for you too. Uh, We probably have trouble controlling our tongues, right? Our thoughts, our time, our emotions. Now, because all of us have some problem with self-control, we should figure out what Scripture has to say about it. We should figure out what it looks like for us to look at Scripture as a way to help us in these practical areas. Otherwise, our problem with self-control will strip, of us, strip us of our careers, our relationships, of our health, right? And so we want to look at some words from Paul, who wrote these words generations ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So, this is what we're, where we will begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 23, it says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you know that in a race all the runners race, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, that word wreath, he's not talking about Christmas wreaths. He's talking about traditional uh, Greek games or races where they would uh, adorn the winner with a ceremonial wreath. But he says here, every athlete exercises what? Where? In all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So this idea of self-control, let's kind of define it so we can kind of understand where we're going. It's this idea uh, that we have strict training that provides us the ability to rule over areas in our life. So he kind of gives some examples. He says this, um, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, Right? But I discipline my body and I keep it under self-control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So jump up to verse 26. It says this, I don't run aimlessly. I don't run without purpose. I don't run without motivation. He also says, I don't just box like someone beating the air. I'm not boxing at, empty, uh, at, at an empty goal, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Why? Why is this so important to the Apostle Paul? What drives him? Look at the last part of verse 27. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is the goal for him? He wants to practice what he preaches. There is this desire for Paul to not only preach The Bible, preach the truth of the gospel, preach the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants to be able to also live his life where people would say, Oh, that's the evidence of what you believe. There's the character, there is the way that you're practically living out your faith. He says, I don't want to just preach, but myself be disqualified. Like an Olympic athlete, he wants the goal of living a life consistent. With his beliefs. Now, in ancient times as well as today, the secret to self control we have been told is willpower, right? We've been told this. Uh, The problem with the secret or key to willpower is we have varying degrees of strength when it comes to willpower, right? For instance, if I brought a pint of ice cream, cookies and cream or mint chocolate chip, for those of you wondering. Your mind might say, you should not eat that whole pint or quart or gallon. You fill in the blank, however, you're wrestling with this issue. Um, Your mind will say, don't do this, and your taste buds will say, that's foolishness, right? If you have ice cream in front of you, your mind says don't do it, even if the rest of you says to do it, what are we talking about? We're talking about our mind having control over our emotions, our will uh, having power over the emotions, its will powering over emotions. Here's the ironic thing. Scripture never talks about that way in terms of self-control. That's not the way... Um, Well, and there's, I think there's a few reasons why. Number one, we are created after the image of God, right? Every part of us was created in the image of God. We're in the image of God in terms of our mind, our emotions, and our will. Now, for the Greek culture, which Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians, the Greek culture, the body was good, the mind was good, the emotions were a weakness. Now, whether or not you believe that might be different, but for the Greek culture, the mind was really important. The body was really important. Emotions were a sign of weakness. And maybe you grew up in a household where that was the case for you. You couldn't cry because that was a sign of weakness. You couldn't show emotion because that was a sign of weakness. Now, for a culture that put a high premium on the mind and the body and decided that, the, that emotions were weak... Now we're talking to, now let's talk about how Christians view how we are created. We believe that God created us in his image. And one of the reasons why we have emotions is because God has emotions, right? We see it all through scripture. So we have emotions because God has emotions. In fact, having mind, will, and emotions are all evidence of being created in the image of God. So self-control cannot be just the mind and the will keeping our emotions at bay. That's counterproductive because at some point, my emotions will get the best of me. At some point, my will will not be able to control my emotions. And for all of us, it's a little different. So the secret to self-control is not willpower. For instance, look at athletes. Uh, The secret to self-control is like the athlete they want things, but they want the prize more than they want things, right? So if you, um, if you were to discuss this with an athlete, they might love ice cream, but they have a higher prize that they're chasing, right? So their love for Ice cream, or whatever the temptation is, to take a day off from training, or to uh, to to do to do whatever that would distract them from the goal. Uh, in comparison to their goal as an athlete, they have a higher prize in mind. So the will orders the rest of our feelings and our mind. Um, I want to give you a biblical example of this. Way back in the Book of Genesis, Genesis chapter twenty nine, we have the story of Jacob and he works, and his boss's name is Laban. Now, some of you might remember this story. By all accounts, Laban was a difficult man to work for. Jacob had a tough time. It was tedious work. Nevertheless, the two men made a deal, which was not uncommon back back in the day. We're not going to unpack the actual bits and pieces of the story, but this was the agreement. Jacob would work seven years in order to earn Jacob's daughter's hand in marriage. Rachel. It would be seven years. Rachel was the joy of his heart. The beauty and joy of his heart. So here's the thing. Jacob works for Laban pretty difficult boss for seven years. The work was hard. It was difficult. It was tedious. This is how scripture describes it from Jacob's point of view. In fact, read this verse out loud together. Ready? Begin. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him, but a few days, why? Because of the love he had for her. They seemed like only a few days to him. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, for seven years, tedious, tiring, long, boring work must have been very hard, yet he describes it as only a few days to him. Well, he has set his heart on a higher thing, right? So here is the secret to self-control. The secret to self-control is not willpower. It is joy power. The secret to self-control is not willpower. It is joy power. Because she was his joy, he was able to say no to a whole lot of other things. He was able to say no to Uh, quitting before the seven years was up. He was able to say no to uh, listening to his body when his body was too tired to keep on working. He was able to say no to a whole lot of of things because she was his joy. And as a result, he was able to experience self-control in a all things. So it's not a matter of will to clamp down the feelings. It's about setting your heart and desire to the one thing that will order the rest of your wants and your feelings. What is the one thing that will order the rest of your wants and feelings? So if you're taking notes, self-control is about the heart. It's not about the will. So let's talk about this practically. Where might you set your heart? Well, let's talk about career success. If you, if your primary joy is career success, then everything in your life will be ordered around you pursuing career success. Now, let's just talk about it for a minute. What are some things that if you pursue career success, what are some things that'll cost you in your life? Help me out. Relationship. Yeah. It'll cost you some relationships, right? Most likely it'll cost you familial relationship because you will spend more time pursuing career success than developing strong healthy relationships. What are some things that you gain from pursuing career success as your primary objective and goal? Finances. We can talk about it. You're going to gain some finances. What else? What's that? Satisfaction. satisfaction. Yeah. So you have to weigh, is, is finances and, and satisfaction enough to cost you your family? You see? Everything okay, Steve and Rita? Okay. I just want to make sure. I'm hearing you, and I just I want to make sure everything's okay. Okay. What can you set your heart on? Um, if you're... F- If your primary goal in life is the approval of others, let's talk about that one. If your primary goal in life is the approval of others, um, what might that cost you in your life? If you're going to live your life so that you're always trying to get the approval of everyone you're around, what will that might cost you in life? I'm sorry? self-esteem buddy that's really powerful man yeah because if you're always giving of yourself and and trying to get the approval of others so you're one person to this person but you're different to this person and now you're different to this person what does that say about how you value your self-worth your identity right now if you are always pursuing uh, financial security, we kind of talked about that with career sex, uh, career success if you 're always produce, uh, 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 pursuing financial security, um, it might cost you integrity at some point. Am I right? If you are always pursuing pleasure, just pleasure, that might cost you your morality right so self control is not about the heart. its I mean, it's about the heart, not the will. Whatever your heart is set on pursuing will order the rest in your life. So here's Laban. He works for seven years for uh, Rachel's hand in marriage. You read the rest of the story. That didn't turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out. But scripture describes that moment in his life that those seven years were but a moment because of the love he had for her, because of the joy he had for this prize, for this goal, it set in order everything else. So when you think about your spiritual life, what is the one thing that if you set your heart here, it will order everything else in your life? There has to be an awareness of where you are setting your heart. Because if you set it on career success, if you set it on pleasure, if you set it on financial security, the approval of others, feeling self-righteous, whatever it is, it will order the rest of your life. Now, oftentimes when I study, I like to read and listen to messages and sermons and, and things people wrote years ago. I came across this message from a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s. And here's this an amazing insight he has about what we're talking about. He says this: "We only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another one has been brought into subordination. A youth may cease to idolize central pleasures like parting all around, but it's because the idol of material gain and clear success has gotten the ascendancy. There is not one person transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of one old affection is by the explosive power of a new one. Let me, let me give you an example of how this plays out. Um, have you ever had a teenager... Who couldn't wake up for anything? Let's rephrase the question Have you ever been the teenager that couldn't wake up for anything? I mean, it doesn't matter if it's church or school or youth group or homework or chores, they cannot get up for anything. Thank you, Haley, for that admission. (laughs) And then one day something happens, they get a job, and all of a sudden, they figured out what the alarm clock app is for on their phone, and they get up and they go to work. All of a sudden, they're able to stay up late working on something. All of a sudden, you start getting feedback of, man, your teenager is such a good worker, And you're looking at this person giving you this feedback and said, Who's teenager? (laughs) Why? What has happened? There has come a new joy in their life that has set in order everything else. Right? So now the joy, that ever-present joy that shows up every two weeks in their bank account now puts in order everything else in their life. This is what Thomas Chalmers is talking about. Unless we have the capacity to replace the joys we have set in our life, then we cannot replace them, and pretty much everything falls from that joy. We now have discipline. We now have Self control because the drive for financial gain in this case has now put in order the rest of their life. They've identified their higher joy. Now, here's the key if your driving joy is something temporary, like career success, pleasures, financial stability, the approval of others, if your driving joy is something temporary, it will help you with your self control, but only for a brief season. And only for some areas in your life. So what is the thing? What is the thing that if you set your heart on it, that will bring you self-control? Well, Paul gives it to us in the very first sentence of today's text in verse 23. Let's read this verse together. Ready, begin. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul says this. I do it all for the gospel. The gospel puts in order everything else in my life. Now, this is a huge sentence. Let us remind ourselves of what Paul endured as a follower of Jesus Christ. We can look up the scriptures, but this is someone who was whipped, who was stoned, who was flogged, who was shipwrecked, who was near death, who whenever he entered a city to tell them about the gospel, two things would happen. He would plant a church and he would be driven out. Imagine if, if that was your resume as you went to a city. Well, tell the places you've been. Well, here's all the places I've, I've started a church and here's everywhere I've been kicked out. Yeah, they'll seem to be the same place. He goes, funny story, that's what happens. I start a church and I get kicked out of the town. They would normally drive him out of town. The word that uh, Luke uses in Acts talks about they would breathe threatenings on his life nearly every place he goes. So here's a guy who's been whipped, who's been stoned, who's been flogged, who's been shipwrecked, who's been driven out of every town. He's tried to plant a church or, or, or help followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. What's his one thing? Well, Paul's single joy in life was the gospel. That was his single joy. And the gospel is this, that even though you are deeply flawed, and you always will be, but because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf on the cross, if you believe the Father's love for you, His love for you now is lofty as the stars, is as unchanging and as high as the mountains. You are endlessly, infallibly, unconditionally loved. And if that is your joy in life, if that's the one thing in your life that controls everything else in your life, you will have self control in some and most of these areas because you are embracing a joy that is higher than any temporary satisfaction you could pursue. Now, what's what's funny is Paul could have ended the sentence really simply. He says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He could have put a period on that and it would have been awesome. We would have said amen and we would have been just as passionate about the gospel being Paul's single joy. But he says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So yes, Paul's single life, single joy in his life was the gospel and Paul's passion was to share the blessings of the gospel with others. In other words, Paul is saying this, I don't want anything to disqualify me From sharing the blessing of the gospel with others. I don't wanna miss out on the blessings of the gospel. I don't wanna live my life inconsistently because then I would not be able to share in the blessings of the gospel. I don't want to be out of step with what I'm preaching because if I'm out of step with what I'm preaching, someone might look at my apathy, someone might look at my inconsistency, and it will reflect poorly on Jesus, and I might not be able to share in the blessings of the gospel because of it. It set in order everything else in his life. So how do we do this? How do we do this? There's some verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that are going to help us, but ultimately we're going to land in Hebrews 12. That's where we're going. So first, 1 Corinthians 10, it's the next chapter of Paul and he's writing and he says this, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, how do we set and order everything in our life? How do we exercise self-control? How do we identify the gospel as our sole joy and let everything work from there? Well, first of all, this is what he's saying. He's saying, they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul put a high priority. These things written down, he's talking about scripture. He's talking about the sacred pages of the gospel, and so we've talked about the Word of God, we've talked about meditating, and until we know the things in our head get into our heart, we continually read them, we continually embrace them. So he talks about Scripture. Verse 12, he says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls, lest he fall. In other words, he's talking about this idea where you have relationships that help you withstand the difficulty of being in the faith. Um... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. In other words, get advice, get counsel, pay attention to yourself, pay attention to where you're at, or else you'll fall. And then he goes on in verse 13, and he says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a whole lot in verse 13. It's talking about temptation. It's talking about that that every one of us will be tempted, um, but that God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability. Every time there's a temptation, he will also provide a way to escape it so that we can endure it. But kind of the, the central point of this verse, what he's asking us to consider is this God is faithful. He's faithful. In other words, if you want to endure, if you want self-control, then we have to embrace this central thought that He is faithful. Now Hebrews twelve tells us what faithfulness looked like for our Savior. It says this: Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Which clings so closely. How many of you can identify with that? The sin just sing, clings closely to you. Paul, or the author of Hebrews is saying, Let's lay aside those weights. He, and then he goes on to say, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself and then look at the end of verse three so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted it's really interesting Uh, word, uh, the the patterns of the words and the phrases that are being used, it's very interesting. The writers of Hebrews says this, um, we're going to look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. We're going to look to him so that we won't be weary or faint-hearted. So this idea of bringing our life under control, of, of putting some measures, some habits in place so that we would develop some character, the writer of Hebrews says, "Man, we're going to look to Jesus so that you don't get weary or faint-hearted. Specifically, we're going to consider this: Jesus knew he would die; he knew he would suffer; he knew he would be betrayed, forsaken by the Father. Talk about talk about uh, being in a position where you knew the worst would inevitably come, yet he did it." and verse 2 tells us how. He says this, Jesus is the author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Now, you think about Jesus, and you think about what he had to endure in order to go to the cross, and you think after the cross, we see the, the resurrection. After the cross, uh, think about this. What did Jesus attain after the cross that he didn't have before? He had a relationship with the Father. He was one with the Father. Uh, so it wasn't that. It wasn't heaven. He was seated at the right hand of God afterwards. He, he was in eternity past in heaven beforehand. Um, so it wasn't heaven. It wasn't that he would get command of the universe once he went to the cross and resurrected. He had uh, The command you saw through the Gospels, the winds and the waves obeyed him. Diseases would come out of people just by his voice. So it wasn't that. He had all those things. What was it that he didn't have before the cross that he had after? I submit to you, it was the joy. It was the joy. It wasn't just willpower. It was joy power. And for those of us who are still wondering what that joy was, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here is the one single passion joy in Christ's life that set in order the rest of his life. The joy was you. That's what drove him. That was his Joy, that was, that was what was set in order everything else in his life. When you see him enduring because you are his beauty and you are his delight, you will be able to endure the temptation to cast aside certain areas of your life. You will be able to endure because he has become your beauty and his, your delight. The knowledge he loved you like that will set your heart to love him like that. Remember Laban and Jacob in the verse in Genesis chapter 29 talked about those seven years. and He said, man, those were just but for a moment because he loved her, because of the love he had for her. I would submit to you today that getting up and reading your Bible tomorrow morning, I would submit to you that figuring out what forgiveness looks like in your life, uh, singing out loud and worshiping God. Um, developing strong and uh, healthy friendships, meditating on scripture, praying and identifying ways that you can incorporate prayer in your life. Once we set God as our joy and recognize that we were his joy, that sets in order the priority for everything else in your life. Um, The knowledge he loves us will set our heart to love him like that. A few years ago, uh, probably several years ago now, we, we started introducing this vocabulary in churches, and it was probably in the mid-70s, um, where we started introducing this vocabulary of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How many of you remember hearing that as a kid? Of asking Jesus in your heart and having a personal relationship. And what we tried to do is we try to take really familiar language to help us understand what having a relationship with Jesus might look like. So we asked people to have Jesus come into your heart. We ask people to have a personal relationship. Here's where we kind of... Um, didn't do uh, people. Uh, we didn't do people justice with that phrasing, and the reason for that is this: we don't know how to have relationships in the first place, right? So, <laughs> if if we are going to have a relationship with Jesus, the same way we have relationship with others, we probably need to define what that relationship looks like. Because if you're like me, you have lived a life where your relationship with others might look like blocking them when you don't want to talk to them. It might look like ignoring them when you don't want to see them. It might look like not forgiving them and holding a grudge against them. It might look like being passive aggressive with them when you should be honest with them. And we have, in essence done ourselves a disservice by equating our relationship quote unquote with others with having a personal relationship with God. Because if we're not careful, we'll block Jesus when we don't want to hear from him. We won't reply when he speaks to our heart. We'll hold things against him. We'll be passive aggressive in our relationship with Jesus. We'll show up on Sunday but not intend to worship. We will go through the motions of a relationship without actually having one. So part of what developing strong spiritual habits is to say, this is how we develop a strong relationship with Jesus. And I pray that as you think about how God loves you, that will help prioritize these other things in your life. When I truly can think about and meditate upon that I was the joy in his mind, When he was on the cross, it makes it much easier for me to forgive someone. When I can embrace that I was the joy on his mind on the cross, it makes getting up and reading scripture and meditating on scripture much easier of an ask. Why? Because it sets in order everything else. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we consider self-control and we consider what Paul is talking about from 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, I pray that that we would uh, be able to order our lives in such a way that you, being our joy, We invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.